Welcome to the Lion's Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk by a student of Lama Yeshe Jinpa was recorded during a regularly scheduled Sunday service. Good morning. I'm going to say a few words. This isn't my uh, scheduled time to be here, but Sabrina's working, so she says, well, what are you going to do for fun today? So... This is fun. This is actually fun for me. So <laughs> it's just display, right? So uh, I want to say a few things from the standpoint of Shambhala. <coughs> uh, people uh, here might be uh, Star Trek fans or Star Wars fans, I don't know, but you know, everyone seems to know like who, who this Yoda character is, right? Um, um, <coughs> they say that actually Yoda uh, looks a little bit like Sarkhan Rinpoche, who was in Dharmasala when um, uh, I guess George Lucas went, you know? So uh, I don't know if that's true, but then you look at Sarkhan Rinpoche was one, a wonderful teacher who um, uh, had a little round face, kind of like Yoda, so maybe. But uh, Yoda was wrong. <coughs> so, you know, Yoda's like, you should, you know, there's no try, you should just do it, right? Something like that. Yeah, that's incorrect. So, <laughs> okay. So, actually, uh, our path is also always about trying. Uh, you know, in kind of 12-step language, we're, we're willing to. Sometimes we have to be willing to willing. We're not even at real willing, but we're just willing to be willing. Uh, but actually, it is all about trying. So it isn't about, uh, you know, like, you either do it or you don't. That's very... Uh, digital, you know, a little bit dualistic, right? In some sense, we can say, uh, from the standpoint of Madhyamaka, it's either this or that. But Madhyamaka, as some of you are reading in Nagarjuna and uh, Tsongkhapa, we're talking about how things kind of must be. But how does it feel to actually do the path? Well, it feels like you're trying. Because it feels like you nailed it, or you completely did it, then you've done, you know, you're no more learning, right? So you're done. <laughs> okay. So if you're on the path, Dharma path, the Marga, it, it's always like, well, I'm trying. So that's what I like to hear from people. Like, how's it going? Well, I'm trying. I'm trying to do it. <clears throat> so just like, you know, the, the mantra, you know, um, gati gati, just like this is keep going, going, it's going. You're trying. So if you've been also reading, uh, actually, you know, uh, there's in some sense also no go or, or no gone, right? But there is trying on a conventional level. So that's confidence. Confidence is you're trying. Say, I'll try it. I'm like, okay, I'll try sitting. I'll try showing up here. 
before I reading these uh, essential texts. Um, it's practice. That's kind of a phrase that's entered like Western German <laughs> American Dharma English or something. <coughs> so, you know, we have like practice objects. I have a practice object. It's very nice. She drives uh, a kind of cherry red um, outback car and is a nurse. So uh, we're trying. I'm trying. That's it, right? That's confidence. I say, I'm, I'm really trying. So that's bodhicitta on the relative level, is I'm trying. So of course, on an absolute level, we can say there's no one trying, there's no nothing to get to. But it really means like loosen up. Like We'll just keep trying. So 99% of Dharma teachings are, well, just keep trying. Like that, it's really interesting. So Yoda was wrong. You know, usually we think, well, I gotta be perfect or I gotta go to some mountain top and then I'll get enlightened. <laughs> and then everyone will see, or at least I won't look like an idiot now. But no, it, it's not that, it's called trying. <laughs> so uh, sometimes uh, we have to put ourselves in difficult situations so to see whether we're getting very rigid or not, whether we can just kind of keep trying. So, you know, we place ourselves on the cushion or we place ourselves in work situations or place ourselves in uh, relationships and we just try. So my teacher, when I uh, met uh, him in 1983, uh, I'd already effectively been doing some formal training in Dharma practice for 13 years. I was kind of a, you know, like, I did my senior thesis in Middlebury by Beta Kappa on Nagarjan and Wittgenstein. So I already had that. So he, he generally didn't like, you know, it's like, let's talk about emptiness, right? You'd always say, well, how's the marriage going? <laughs> because when, when you're doing relationships, uh, otherwise known as real life, you, you can't say it's you know, perfect, right? Can you? No, you should always say, just I'm giving away the little secret here. You should just say, well, I'm trying, you know, or you know, it could be I'm trying to get out of it, you know, but that's trying, right? That can be hard, you know, sometimes even leaving something, I'm trying to you know, fix this thing or get out of it. But that's the bodhisattva path is we're trying. That's why it's just going, going, going. Just keep going. Nothing goes, but we're going. So that's confidence. So confidence isn't getting it right. Confidence is, is trying. I know that, that can be used as an excuse. You know, of course. But it's okay to ask, well, how are you trying? What's the evidence? So we are doing evidence-based dharma, right? <laughs> you know, like DVT is supposed to be evidence-based. EMDR is supposed to be evidence-based, right? You know, cognitive behavioral therapy, evidence-based. Well, dharma is evidence-based. So what's the evidence that you're trying? Well, primarily you're showing up. That's pretty good. And, you know, you're trying. So that's what we celebrate. You know, is, is people trying like that. Um, when you kind of so-called get to the end, whatever, you know, the peak or something, uh, you, you realize there's, there's no one there that needs to get an award, right? 
need the award. You don't need, like, you reach the end, here's your certificate, <laughs> and, you know, da-da-da-da. Uh, however, in the conventional world, it's nice to have a certificate, right? So uh, somewhere I have my llama certificate in the safe, you know. Uh, I'm not posting it on the website, however, so don't have to, like, worry about that. Some Western teachers have done that and actually post, you know, I get that too. Okay, so you think I'm a scam, don't hear them. But um, I, I should just say on website while well, I'm trying. That's confidence, <laughs> okay, like that. So, but now, now the fun part is I get to turn it over to Andrew and talking about doubt, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, but that's interesting too. We have to work with, we're working with uh, both sides. Mm. So now he's going to have to do like a shorter talk. <laughs> okay. So I'll be around a little bit afterwards. Uh, I was going to give uh, uh, actually a teaching on Shambhala but verbally, but now I'm just going to do it because Truco uh, uh, and Don and I are going to be cleaning, right? We're going to be Vajra cleaning. So that's Shambhala. You know, cleaning. So that's what I'll be doing starting at 1.30. We'll be, be cleaning. Will we let people join us? Maybe not this time. It's kind of exclusive, right? We shouldn't, no, shouldn't let them join. Not. Should we let them join or not? Okay, if you try. You just got to try. Okay. But please stay for snacks. Yes. Okay, you're in? You're a trier? I brought my own vacuum today. Okay, all right, good. All right, you're in. All you got to do is say, can I be in? Can I try to, you know, and get on, get on the train? Okay. So Vajra, Vajra cleaning, like that. Okay. Okay. Can everyone hear me? Yeah? A little higher? A little higher up here with this? Is that better? Okay. Okay. So welcome, everybody. Um, anyone here for the first time? Welcome. Okay. So uh, some of you may know that um, I've been doing a series of talks on the glaciers, and uh, I've been kind of slowly winding my way through them. My first talk was on anger back in February of last year. Uh, I've also done pride, envy, and fear, and today. I'm going to end my series with a discussion on doubt. And uh, so my sources for this talk are mostly Darshan with Lamala, but also Ringu Tolku Rinpoche. So um, just to, if you haven't been to any of those other talks, I'm going to give you an introduction. Otherwise, this is just a reminder of what um, uh, Klesha is and what it means. It's basically uh, translated as uh, an afflictive emotion. Um, a simple definition, according to Lama, is emotions that cause deep conflict both internally and externally. And Lama always emphasizes to me the externally because so much of our interpersonal conflicts are the result of afflictive emotions. Uh, the, most of you, if not all of you, have heard of the three poisons, attachment, aversion, ignorance, and then in Mahayana there's two more poisons, pride and envy. In Buddhist psychology, 
our afflictive emotions, our kleshas, arise from these poisons. So you can think about afflictive emotions, uh, some of the most common ones we might think about. I think, you know, there's like core afflictive emotions, depression, sadness, anxiety, fear, envy, jealousy, um, pride, self-glorification, guilt and shame. Have I left any out? I think all the, the other emotions kind of flow from those. Everything kind of flows down, 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 down. So we have these surface level of emotions. And uh, all of us have felt them, right, um, in varying degrees at various times. And oftentimes these feelings are so challenging that we, we find ways to deny them to ourselves. We find ways to numb ourselves from them. Um, and when we do that, they begin to have control over us, right? Um, and then at some point, you know, we become aware of these emotions and uh, we have this more conscious awareness of our suffering. Um, and on the one hand, that's a good thing because then we're less unconscious and therefore we're less controlled by these emotions, but then we feel worse. So it's this cycle where we want to kind of get away from it because it's too much. And then when we're dealing with it, we're aware of our suffering, um, which allows us to do something about it. And so. Ideally, you know, those afflictive emotions serve as a motivation on our bodhisattva path because everyone is feeling this. So it, it increases our compassion for all beings. Um, I suspect that a lot of people in this room are here in part because of those afflictive emotions um, and not finding that you have enough of a felt sense of how to, to manage those. There's the, the, it's that nagging that occurs that we all have, that it's just not enough. You know, whatever you're doing, it's just not enough. So you, you, you're looking for something else. Um, and so, you know, trying to understand how to handle those emotions or where they come from is not why all of you are here, but I'm sure that many of you are here for that. I know that I, that was a big part of what brought me to Buddhism. Um, and so to understand these emotions means to kind of drill down and uh, understand where they come from. And sometimes that's super obvious, like somebody insults you. Um, but then it can go deeper than that. Maybe you're, you react so strongly to that insult because of how you were treated as a child. You, you know, you're, it's a button, as they say, that gets pushed for you. So um, this is starting to sound like uh, psychology or psychotherapy, which is kind of common for me to go to because that's what my training is. Um, and so that's what I always have to watch out for is that I don't turn Buddhism into psychotherapy, but there are, there are a lot of parallels. Buddhism is also looking for the roots of those afflictive emotions. It just looks for them in different ways than psychology does. Um, so the roots in Buddhism go back to the three poisons, attachment, aversion, and ignorance, uh, especially ignorance. So for example, if we look at anger, we can say that it's obviously coming from aversion, right? Uh, we're pushing away someone else from ourselves with our anger. But within that, we can also see ignorance. In the ignorance, it creates a fundamental duality of self and other, which is where the root of all conflict begins. Us versus them, me versus you. You're either for us or against us, right? So uh, 
that's, you know, those afflictive emotions all arise from especially those three poisons. So when I came to Lamala with the idea to do this series of talks on the kleshas, he told me to start with anger, which is the most powerful and aversive klesha, and that it was a good idea to end the series with doubt, which is the most subtle of the kleshas. Um, so in preparing for this talk, I, I came across a teaching from Ringu Tulka Rinpoche that shows that this is actually following the proper order in terms of how klesha teaching should begin and progress. So this is, I'm going to read from him for a second. Ignorance is the most fundamental of the kleshas, but also the most difficult to work with. So we need to begin with our attachment and aversion. Traditionally, the teachings begin with attachment, but I think it's easiest to begin with anger or aversion. Attachment is so strong in us, we are not really ready to work on it. Of course, if we can deal with attachment, then aversion is taken care of automatically whereas dealing with aversion will not necessarily rid us of attachment. But most people are not prepared to work on their attachment straight away, although they can quite easily see how anger and aversion are destructive and unpleasant. In a sutra, it says this very clearly. It says that of the three poisons, ignorance is the most basic and pervasive. It is like the earth. If we can rid ourselves of this, we will rid ourselves of all the negative emotions but this is difficult precisely because it is so deep and fundamental. Yet ignorance does not cause us acute pain or present immediate difficulties, nor will it throw us into the hells, so we can deal with it more slowly. Then attachment, it says, is like water. It is very pervasive. It causes us pain and suffering and is not easy to get rid of. Attachment is not all bad. It has both a negative and a positive side, for example, compassion and love, or the resolution to become enlightened. We can be a little patient with this too. Water takes a long time to dry up. Aversion is compared to fire. It has almost no positive side. Wishing harm for others will always bring us suffering for others and for ourselves too. Aversion then is where we must begin. It has the quality of a flame. It bursts up very quickly and can burn away everything. But when the fuel is no longer there, it will go down again just as quickly. Lamala says that doubt is a specific activity of ignorance. Underneath everything is a dull state onto which we project a dualistic understanding of existence. This dullness in Buddhism is alternately described as avidya or marigpa, and it is synonymous with ignorance. Some scholars have actually argued that ignorance is not a perfect translation. We're always having trouble with translating the original terms because they don't automatically fit every time. And uh, for example, Alex Wayman says avidya means more than ignorance and suggests that the term unwisdom might be a better translation. This term includes not only ignorance out of darkness, but also obscuration, misconceptions, mistaking illusion to be reality or impermanence to be permanent, or suffering to be bliss, or non-self to be self. Lama says that doubt is usually reserved for patterns that are thought-based and that cause us to hold incorrect views and cause us to stop practicing. For example, um, we can fall into nihilistic or agnostic views. I don't think anybody really can know the truth. Maybe nothing really is true. How can we possibly know what's true? Perhaps you've 
heard people say these sorts of things or you felt them at times. Uh, maybe other people have it, but I don't think I can do it. Um, maybe I'm not capable of doing it. Maybe I don't deserve it. These are, these are uh, doubt-based thoughts that people might have. He says that doubt can also contain wrong views, such as that the point of Buddhism is to feel better. Right? We have these afflictive emotions that we just want to feel better, right? That's conventional, right? He says that the point is actually to be free. That uh, feeling better comes along for the ride, but it's not the point. So one of my personal doubts has to do with time. Um, where I'm at at this stage in my life is uh, the demands on my time are particularly intense. I'm in the sandwich generation. I've got two teenagers and uh, aging parents, one of whom is slipping into dementia. I have two jobs, very demanding jobs, and uh, I really feel the increasing need for my personal self-care to keep my energy level up. So sometimes I kind of fall into this, this uh, feeling like my Dharma life gets squeezed into the margins, and uh, I, I start to enact the klesha of envy, and I imagine that all of you Sangha have this unlimited time and unlimited energy, and you're all just reading all the time and doing bodhisattva activity, and um, you know maybe that, that would be nice if I could be like that. Maybe someday, maybe when the kids are out of the house. You know, maybe if I still have my cognitive faculties, I can get there. But right now, uh, it just doesn't feel. So that's the, that's the doubt that I start to get into. Um, so Lama says, you know, also I was, I was thinking about as we started this Dharma study program, my gosh, <laughs> these books, they're so, they're so much. I'm so glad Lama talked about the summary because that, that was very helpful. But... <laughs> Um, still, th these books have um, a lot to them. And I can see why Lama's having us do them. Um, my attitude about her opinion is that we need to understand the wisdom side. It's easy for us to kind of leave that aside because that's the hard part. Um, but all of this is, is challenging. And so with the time, I just think, oh, no, maybe I don't have enough time to do all this reading. So Lama says that, that yes, this is a pretty good representation of doubt, what I'm describing. So he says, um, you know, he encourages us to read as much as we can, but says that doubt would be, I have to read everything. He says that the doubt of attaining realization in this lifetime comes from a misunderstanding of what realization is. And this is, I'm sure, uh, something that many of you have heard before. Uh, Lama will say, turtles win the race. Lama also says that we in the West tend to conflate critical analysis and skepticism with doubt. Buddhist teachers have al always encouraged investigation of Dharma principles. Lama says that doubt is when we begin to stop investigating. He says it's the kink in our garden hose. Doubt is the beginning of the problem, and the end of the problem is misknowledge. I don't really have Buddha nature. Other people don't have Buddha nature. This usually ends in a nihilistic misjudgment about other people. We start to think other people are jerks and will never get better, or we can go down the opposite rabbit hole of, well, there are no beings to save, so why try? So remember we were talking about doubt arising from fundamental confusion, which then births a dualistic sense of self and other. Lama says that as long as there is a dualistic consciousness, there will be doubt. When we take conventional truth 
to be absolute, then we're in trouble. Doubt is many ignorance. Either we're not looking at something or we're looking at it in the wrong way. Lama says we have to do a lot of practice to learn how to take ultimate truth as truth. This is uh, a lot of work and it's uh, one foot in front of the other path. In Buddhism, there's a lot of talk about antidotes. When you're dealing with five poisons, it's a good idea to have some antidotes and a means to purify these poisons, right? Um, there, of course, is only one ultimate antidote to these poisons, and that is the wisdom realizing emptiness. In Mahayana Buddhism, we talk about the two truths, the conventional truth of the world as we perceive it, and the ultimate truth that it is empty of inherent existence. Fortunately for us, there are relative or conventional antidotes that can benefit us while we trudge along in ignorance, continually mistaking conventional truth as absolute. So, what are some antidotes to doubt? Well, um, fortunately we did have a, a wonderful talk by Patty a few weeks ago on confidence. Um, and confidence is a really good relative antidote to doubt. Um, I was thinking about, uh, one thing I do in my work is I, I, I work at a hospital with um, teaching physicians how to motivate their patients to health behavior change. And um, there's this strategy called motivational interviewing. And it, what it says is that there's two things that need to happen for behavior change to occur. One is motivation, and the other is confidence and the ability to make the change. So that really struck me that, that that applies here. Like, you can have all the motivation in the world, but if you don't have that confidence, you're not going to try, as Lama says. So you have to have some degree of confidence to be able to move forward on the path. Um, so it really does benefit when you're feeling doubt to try to find means of confidence. So we already know how to do things because we see that they work. I see that it works for me and for others. Lama says confidence starts early and starts with simple things. That's something Patty talked a lot about. Um, it's not having to attain perfect enlightenment. For example, Lama points out that the value of teaching and benefiting others builds our confidence. Doing these talks definitely builds my confidence, so thank you for the opportunity. Um, we can see the karmic benefits and that compassion and action has benefits for our wisdom. I certainly see this in my work in when I'm able to teach meditation or discuss Buddhist principles like loving-kindness with patients and physicians and see the value that it brings to their lives. Maybe when you have conversations with people, you might notice it starts to make a little more sense and they're benefited. I think that's a real value in, of, of Sangha, is these conversations, and, and it builds our own confidence. Another relative antidote is, again, what Patty discussed about putting one foot in front of the other. Seeing the small confidences of your daily life as part of the path. We're not hopeless beings. Patty talked about functional confidence in Buddha Dharma which is teaching something that we already know how to do without an emphasis on the personal self. We build this confidence step by step, piece by piece, like a jigsaw puzzle, until we realize eventually that the puzzle has been completed and big doubt has been dispelled. How did I do? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Want to make sure I, I uh, represented you right. Some of you in Darshan have no doubt heard Lama's analogy of being at the base camp or the lodge and being able to see the summit. You have no doubt that it's there. 
but often when you're halfway up the mountain, you start getting a little bit gassed, and you can't see the summit anymore. People that have mountain climbed, you know what I'm talking about, right? And you're like, man, can I do this? The Bodhisattva knows the summit's still there, and that you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and that you'll make it. Another analogy that I really love is that of a labyrinth. Who here has walked a labyrinth before? Oh, almost all of you. That's great. So you know what I'm talking about then. There's a wonderful uh, labyrinth near my house, actually, that I like to go to um, in the park. And so you start there, and you see the center in the middle. And so you're confident that you're going to make that, that middle. And so you start walking, and you're, you're making progress, and you can see that you're getting closer. And then all of a sudden, it kicks you back out. And you're like, what the hell? You know, I, where, what happened to all that progress I made? Where did it go? Um, and so you start to have a little bit of doubt. Are you, is this path a trap? Is this something that I'm not actually going to be able to proceed with? But of course you keep going and you reach the center. Lama says one foot in front of the other really is the path. A uh, final Lama analogy is losing your diamond ring in a room. You know it's there. You know you can find it, but you don't know how long it's going to take or exactly or when you're going to find it. Maybe you've been looking for a while and doubt starts to creep in. Did I actually lose it in this room? Did it get stolen? Did my dog come along and eat it? So we can really start to run away with our doubts and they can take on a life of their own. Lama says we can also sustain ourselves with even glimpses of the truth. These glimpses are usually very inspiring. Uh, maybe it's an experience of a bliss state during meditation. Or maybe it's a flash of wisdom mind peeking through and having a certainty that your, your thought is actually uh, an insight. For example, an insight that you don't have to keep following a certain pattern of behavior that's not working for you. The daily step-by-step -step of meditation has been a, a main driver of this realization for me. More and more I start to have these experiences that uh, the doubt starts to creep away. And what I'm, what I'm, I'm having these mini-realizations. I think, Lama, you've talked about this before, where a lot of times people are having realizations and they're just not aware that they're having realizations. Um, but that's important to kind of be able to notice those realizations as they arise. Um, and I will always thank Ellen for, for the Viktor Frankl quote, because you, you taught it to me for the first time. Uh, Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So the image of that little space, it's like a little crack in the door that lets the light in. It builds our confidence that we'll find our way out of the dark and into the light. That comes from the slow, systematic, step-by-step -step approach. Lama says, this is the model where doubt is dispelled with flashes of insight. And this framework is very commonly held. I actually think early on, uh, in early adulthood, when I was reading Zen koans, uh, I was really attracted to that idea of solving a puzzle, like what's the sound of one hand clapping could lead to instant enlightenment. You know, that always this co or often this koans would end with, and he was instantly enlightened. Right. Lama wanted me to mention that even though flashes of insight can be helpful, it can be a trap to chase these insights. He says that people chasing insights are drug addicts. 
He says that people craving signs, space-like awareness, bliss, and no thought is like chasing an experience. What really works is following the path, which has a systematic methodology to it. View, meditation, action. He reminds us that Shakyamuni was very systematic and scientific in his teaching, laying out a noble eightfold path to understanding things as they are. Going back to the diamond ring in the room analogy, the way to find it is, the best way is to make a grid pattern and systematically eliminate the wrong grids where the ring isn't until you find it. With each elimination, you become more and more certain that you're getting closer to the truth. Lama says that planners win. So what I realize now, looking back on those koans, is that those monks weren't instantly enlightened. They had done much systematic study, meditation, and action that allowed them to reach the truth of those koans. When we lose faith and hope and doubts take over, we can look at others on the path and see that they have done it and are doing it, to let them be our golden thread that connects us to our Buddha nature. I don't know if any of you had the opportunity to see His Holiness. Um, a few years ago, um, I was able to see him in San Francisco. I could only understand about half of what he said, but just being in his presence was what I really took away from that. Um, there was just a, uh, an expansiveness about him. Like when he laughed, he would just throw his head back and his whole body would laugh. And it was just really something. Uh, he just carries himself with such ease. Uh, closer to home, I think we all can take our inspiration from Lamala. Um, I can certainly tell you, uh, being at Middleway Health, that he walks the talk. Um, I don't know. I'm always impressed with the fact that he sees something like eight or nine people a day. Is that about right? Keep going. Ten or eleven, my gosh. To be able to maintain that kind of energy and, and to listen to all those stories, um, you have to have something. And getting up at 3 a.m., so these are inspirations to me. Um, and then we have our wonderful teachers that have come here, Kancha Rinpoche, Jada Rinpoche, Geshe-la, or any of the other amazing teachers that we have that we, that we come in contact with. Or when we see our own Sangha members, um, we can see their Buddha nature in their words and deeds. So, and that's one of the reasons I think it's so important that we connect to Sangha. Bodhisattvas also gain confidence because of compassion and the desire to save others. This is the emotional juice that drives us. We've got to do something to help. Ultimately, though, confidence comes from the understanding of how things actually exist. This merges wisdom with compassion, which is bodhicitta, the spirit of awakening that is within all of us and will no doubt ultimately dispel doubt. So that's my talk. Questions or comments? Bit here, just uh, one of my favorite analogies, teachings. Um, losing, losing a small diamond out, out of the ring. You lose the ring, that's e easy to find, but a little pop out. So the methodology is, of course, we create a grid pattern. Uh, and you just 
one inch square. And uh, when we look there and we find it, great. But if we don't find it, then you cover it. And you keep going. So, uh, of course, we may be inspired that we may find it, but actually maybe it didn't pop out. So we cover it. They covered that, right? And when you determine that it's not in there, you do not go back. That's the methodology. You do not go back. That's why I, people spin in samsara. They go, that's the doubt. Like, hmm, maybe, maybe, you know, I didn't look well enough. You know, so, <laughs> you know, so, and then you forgot which grid, you know, it's kind of like, like getting lost in the forest. You know, <laughs> like, have I been here before? Kind of looks different. <laughs> I don't know. You know, so, uh, you know, if, if you're lost in the forest, uh, do two things, like either just stay right there or keep walking the same direction, right? So I'm not making this up because I've talked to, I've been lost before, but usually we circle, right? So don't, just go straight. <laughs> okay. But you do not go back. That's why we have a methodology, you know, basically. So each one we determine, just like you're reading, you know, it's not there. If, it, if it's not there, and you determine it, cover it, and do not go back. So when you get to you know, the last square, and it's not there, it's not there. There's no doubt. It's not there. It's in the parking lot <laughs> or something. But maybe you've covered the whole world with your grid, and it's not there. I've covered the whole world with a grid, and it is not there. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with us. It's not there. That's what you have to have. It's not there, and do not go back. Right? You know, the biblical thing about, you know, like, or even Greek myth, like Orpheus turns back to look at Eurydice, right? Yeah. Or you turn back to look what turned into pillar of salt or something. <laughs> Okay, that's why I say don't look back. If, you, if it's not there and you determine through proper methodology, that's called the path. We could call it methodology, but you don't circle back again. That makes sense, right? Absolutely. Then, then if you don't find it, it's not there. You don't think, well, I'll keep looking. No, it's not there. That's easy, right? Okay. This had to, that's one of my favorite things because I, I did lose like a d diamond out of my Vajra ring, you know, but couldn't find it. But then I made the jeweler give me another one. <laughs> That's conventional too. I didn't find it. I found it. <laughs> this is somebody else's. I had a question, but it reminded me, um, for those of you that have been in my house, we have this four-car garage now, and my husband and I actually built most of that ourselves, including when they came to pour the driveway, we're out there in our rubber boots, you know, pulling up the rebar and such. We got done with the pour, and the diamond from my 
engagement wedding ring was, was gone. <laughs> so it's someplace in that, in that driveway, and I think I'll just leave it there. And now I have a Costco ring, and it doesn't have a diamond. But um, <laughs> it, I was thinking about Dowd on my drive here this morning, looking forward to this talk, and I think, uh, you know, thank goodness for the path. For the most part, I don't have a lot of conceptual or intellectual doubt. When, when it arises, I can remind myself that I'm going in the right direction. But what I notice is when something happens, it sort of like feels like it throws me off my game, like I'm destabilized, you know, and then stuff like goes wrong. I forget where I left my car keys, and I just have this like, like feeling like I'm a little out of sorts. And I'm trying to think about what you said and, you know, how do I apply the antidote? What's the antidote to that experience? Because it's not super clear to me that, that you know, I'm not clear that I'm going in the right direction or I haven't really stopped putting one foot in front of the other. I just feel like I'm not quite in the zone anymore. You know, I feel like it, it, I'm just a little off. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about, about that. Oh, I never feel that, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I guess my, I guess for me, I mean, of course, there's all sorts of different relative antidotes that might come up, come up like uh, Lojong or uh, Tonglen. But um, sometimes, I guess for me, it's kind of going back to maybe this is a manifestation of uh, one of the poisons, the afflictive emotion, right? So. We're continually being impacted by them because we haven't realized emptiness. Um, and until we do, we're going to be impacted by these poisons. And so um, it can be kind of, a, I don't know, helpful to kind of keep it in that frame that. Um, You know, it's motivation to continue on the path that, that this felt sense of suffering is still occurring and that there's a way out of it. I guess that's what I use. Yeah, I, I sort of wondered if the answer is just keep going anyway, you know, and be okay with being built, feeling thrown off <coughs> once in a while, but I don't, like, I don't like it. I wish I could find my grounding faster. Mm -hmm. <coughs> When I was listening to um, Andrew, thank you, and Lama, um, and then Ellen picked right up on it because my thought was is that you don't look back right. This this link between confidence and doubt is so important because the link between confidence and continuance on the path is the same link. It's like, um, okay, you don't look back once you've searched that particular area and it's not there. But the fact for me is I found something that is there and so I don't look back or elsewhere because it's there and I have confidence that it is there. And you just sort of touched right on it is that, yeah, so we get wobbly, but we have no doubt that this is this is this is where we're going, so it's kind of like the other piece, I guess. That was just 
Yeah, I think about, um, Lama talked about practice objects, and my uh, oldest daughter is probably my biggest practice object right now, 16, and nobody can kind of get me angry like she can. <laughs> I think she kind of thrives on it sometimes. Um, but I feel like I'm moving out on the labyrinth. <laughs> I thought I was doing better, and all of a sudden, like, you know, I'm just in this total anger place, and so I think it's important to remember that, no, I'm not behind. Maybe back to your point, I'm not having to look back and say I've lost all that I've, I've gained. It's, um, these are practice opportunities, but to keep the eye on the prize that I'll get there, the confidence that it's, that's, I can get there, and I will get there. Susan brought up an important point. So, uh, when you find it, stop looking. <laughs> okay. Well, looking for it. When you find it, you still want to see it, of course. So, much of the path is, uh, of course, uh, finding out that what we thought was there isn't there. But when we're uh, practicing from the standpoint, uh, our view of Mahamudra Dzogchen, uh, you want to recognize what's there. And the hard part is, you know, sometimes stopping. So, like in Talopa's um, Mahamudra Upadesha, you know, it's like, just, just or, or Talopa's uh, six points, something like, don't rest, don't look, you know, give up, you know, stop, you're there, stop selling, you know. <laughs> so, so, keep looking until you find it's not there, and, and either rest that it's not there, or rest when you find it. So it's always activity, rest, activity, rest. We have 18 minutes. So you can see here for 18 minutes, you can do it at home. If you're doing practice with the right amount <laughs> of trying, more is better. How I manage to practice a lot is um, there's no mystery. I don't do any distractions really. I don't waste my time. So, and I get up early. Okay? So when people say, I don't have time to practice, I like talking in their shot and they go, well, I did this and I did that. <laughs> and I go, or I needed that TV show. And I go, okay. I wouldn't be a good teacher if I didn't say, actually, more, you know, more is better. Six minutes a day is not enough. Yeah, you got to do more. I'm always going to say that, but every once in a while I might say do less, but you can at least do 18 minutes, right? Can we, can we do that? Okay. This has been a Lion's Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org.